Exploration often seems to involve planting a flag, claiming a space for king and country, even if the space involved was already home to someone else. Even in the 20th century, such flag planting continued, although often in a more symbolic form. Exploration of space has been no different. Space missions, satellites, rovers, spacecraft, even robotic arms are all decked out in patriotic regalia. But not everything. There is something devoid of all that. A solemn artwork and memorial which was placed on another world. The man still on the moon. The secret career of John Philip Sousa and the musical journey of violinist Edmund Agopian, all on this episode of Culture Monster. Hello everyone, I'm Jonathan Gressel, and welcome to Culture Monster, the podcast that devours the arts. You can find Culture Monster wherever you find your podcasts and directly at culturemonster.ca. Today, I speak with a violinist who grew up in communist Romania and followed his curiosity to a busy career involving performance, teaching, composing, arranging, and conducting. I also tell two stories about little-known aspects of parts of American culture that exist just beyond the imagery of the stars and stripes and bald eagles clutching fearsome arrows. But first, the culture monster bite of the day. This is why I recommend something I have been devouring recently. On the podcast, I've spoken with a number of conductors about how they think about their work, but there are a few films about the subject. One movie that made the rounds of film festivals last fall has the English title Conduct. It follows students in the conducting class of the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, Finland, probably the world's most famous conducting training institution. While this movie isn't widely available quite yet, there is another movie closer to home, which is available to watch on CBC Gem for free. Disruptor Conductor is the story of conductor Daniel Bartholomew Poiser, now on staff at the Toronto Symphony. Poiser's life was transformed by hearing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and was a public school music educator before making the leap to professional symphonic conducting. Sometimes, feeling an outsider as a black gay conductor, the film follows how he joins up with drag artist Thorgy Thor, a violinist, to create Canada's first drag show with orchestra. Poiser works to show that whether you show up at a theater in tails, denim, or even some seriously fabulous shoes, the symphony can be a place for everyone. Music heals the soul. Um, beauty heals the soul. And music is one of the most universal and one of the most um, pointed and accessible ways of encountering beauty regularly in our life. The wave of space exploration that culminated in the moon landings was full of American patriotic symbols. The plaque left by the Apollo 11 astronauts might have couched this achievement in terms of overall human excellence, but that was printed above the signature of President Richard Nixon. The special American flag, designed to stand upright even in the absence of any wind, was much bigger and the photos of Neil Armstrong planting it remain the main cultural images of the mission. It wasn't called the space race for nothing. The United States government raced to the moon, not just for science, but also to make sure it would have technological, and let's face it, military advantage over the Soviet Union. The USSR's announcement of the first man-made satellite, the first man and woman in orbit, 
the first spacewalk, galvanized Americans into putting maximum effort into NASA. In fact, in 1966, NASA consumed over 4.5% of the entire federal government budget. These days, that number is closer to a half a percent. Despite this, the people involved knew the danger of strapping people onto giant tubes of explosives and had much respect for their fellow explorers on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Astronauts took their public identity as ambassadors from Earth seriously. This is clear even from the press tours of the Apollo 8 astronauts. When planning for Apollo 15, astronaut David Scott met space-obsessed artist Paul von Hoeidonk and made a plan to put an artwork on the moon. One not for the honor of the USA, but in memory of the 14 men, astronauts and cosmonauts that had died in the name of space exploration. And so, Fallen Astronaut was born. A small aluminum, vaguely human-shaped figure, very deliberately without race or gender, was created and sent up to the moon on Apollo 15. The artist had originally intended the sculpture to be surrounded in acrylic, both for aesthetic reasons, but also so that the sculpture would be able to stand upright. This idea was nixed by NASA, possibly for safety reasons. It turns out the astronaut and artist had very different ideas of what the purpose of the artwork was and how it should be mentioned publicly. Scott thought of this as mainly a private memorial. Near the end of his time on the moon, he had his colleague distract mission control while he went alone to a spot to place fallen astronaut at its new home, along with a small plaque with the names of 14 astronauts and cosmonauts who were publicly known to have died during the space race up to that point. None of this was publicly mentioned until the post-mission press conferences, where Paul von Hoedonk's name was not mentioned. Scott thought the artist had agreed to keep his identity a secret, but Hoedonk was very angry, his historic achievement of being the first artist to have a sculpture placed on another world was being erased. There followed a complicated and strange scandal involving accusations of commercialization of the space program for private gain. All of this added to the bad publicity surrounding NASA at the time the Apollo program was being cancelled. Both the artist and artwork have re-entered public view recently. And as the 2020s increasingly seem to be a decade that will feature another flag-waving space race full of nationalistic undertones, it is worthwhile to remember this solemn artwork and the true meaning of the words, We came in peace for all mankind. Philip Sousa is never far from official patriotic America. Hardly a presidential inauguration, 4th of July celebration, change of command ceremony, or Main Street Parade would exist without the music of the March King. We might think of him as staid and old-fashioned now, but he was possibly the first American to be a worldwide celebrity. In an age before airplanes, before recording, before the radio, he played to more than a million people. He circumnavigated the globe with his band. Whether the Paris Exposition, London's Royal Albert Hall, the Calgary Stampede, he was in demand everywhere. But beyond El Capitan and the Washington Post March, there was another creator. I don't mean his skill as a violinist or his time as a man of the theater. After all, he did write more than a dozen musicals. I mean something not involving music at all. John Philip Sousa's literary career. His memoir, Marching Along, is still remembered today, but Sousa also wrote at least three published novels. 
One was inspired by the neighborhoods and people living in Washington, D.C. during his childhood. One was an adventure story involving a fictionalized version of the United States Navy's expedition to photograph the transit of Venus in 1883, something the real Sousa had written a march commemorating. But it is his first novel, The Fifth String, about a violinist, which certainly retains some interest. It is a fairly short tale of an immigrant violinist trying to make it big in America, and to be successful in love. The dark idea could be at the center of a story by Edgar Allan Poe. Our protagonist romances the daughter of a banker, but a marriage will not be possible unless he can move into a more affluent tax bracket. He, of course, also has the desire to be the greatest musical artist he can be. He makes a deal with a mysterious figure for a special violin, one with five strings. While the four usual strings have the power to arouse special feelings, pity, hope, joy, and love, he is careful never to touch his bow to the fifth string. He soon becomes a great success and wins the heart of his beloved. She becomes irresistibly intrigued with the mystery of the fifth string. Finally, she insists he play on it. And he does. And while the other strings create the most beautiful music, the fifth string brings only death. This gothic shocker is certainly due for reinvention. If only Tim Burton would discover the story and direct a film adaptation. I might just be the first in line. While he does hold the title of John Roberts' Distinguished Professor of Fine Arts, School of Creative and Performing Arts, University of Calgary, Edmund Agopian does far more than teach violin to the next generation of talented students. As a violinist, he has been very active as a solo performer, recitalist, and chamber musician. He continues to conduct the U Calgary Orchestra and the Calgary Youth Orchestra, and conducts the Calgary Philharmonic on a regular basis. His string quartet has made an award-winning recording featuring his arrangements, and he has played the world premiere performances of a whole bunch of brand new compositions. Born in Romania, he has performed across Canada and has been an integral part of the musical community in Calgary for almost two decades. He spoke to me about all of this during our conversation. Violinists often start very young, so I'm assuming that music was a big part of your childhood. Where did you grow up and what was that like? So I was born in Constanza, Romania, and that's where I started my violin training. It was at the age of six. That's when most kids started their sort of instrumental lessons. And uh, the system also includes uh, ear training and theory along with your uh, instrumental studies. So from the very first year uh, of uh, instrumental study, uh, you have to take ear training and theory. And uh, so that sort of um, makes it uh, more efficient that uh, the violin lessons are just uh, they just deal with violin instruction and you get your ear training and your theory uh, at a different time of the week. And that was part of the music school system that you have in Romania. And uh, so it's, uh, it's very, you know, it was organized and uh, you were around with other uh, music students uh, and it was kind of an after school activity. Um, so uh, yeah, it was, it was quite uh, focused. I mean, that suggests that by the time you were a teenager, you had, you know, a wealth of a wealth of technique, but also uh, a good amount of knowledge of the basics of music. And at that time, were you thinking, yes, I, I want to be a violinist and, and play uh, for the rest of my life? Yeah, the way the school system works in Romania is that when you are in grade eight, you have to decide to which high school you are going to apply to and everything is you already sort of uh, geared towards a career and high schools are set up uh, at that time 
this was in the 70s, high schools were set up to do that. So if you wanted to go into sciences, you went to a science high school. If you wanted uh, to do music, you went to a music high school. And so uh, from grade on, nine until grade 12, you essentially really focused on, on those areas, on that individual area. Of course, you had courses in, in, in other areas also. It was great because you could focus at an early age on what you want to pursue as a career. The problem was that if you change your mind later, uh, then you're kind of stuck because it's it's essentially impossible to go back to grade nine and enter another you know high school if you're already in grade 12 and you decide, well, that's not really what I want to do for the rest of my life. So it's quite a different system where, you know, in North America, I mean, people enter university and they still don't know what their careers are, are going to be or, you know, what they want to focus on. On the other hand, with these, you know, in the music high school, you are surrounded by people with the same interests. The whole atmosphere is different from just a regular high school where, you know, music is just a subject. The advantage also was, you know, in ear training that you, you know, learn solfege early, you know, you develop uh, your oral skills early. And in fact, from grade one, the, the way you, you are admitted to at that time to a music school was that a teacher who was kind of the uh, person who, you know, allowed you in or, you know, refused the entry to the school would essentially tap a rhythm. And if you couldn't tap it back, or if you couldn't sing back the tune, then uh, you, were, you couldn't get in. Vetting was done like it when you first applied for a grade one. And so your life was kind of decided with that ear training test. Can you tap a rhythm back and can you sing the tune back? And if you could do neither, that was the end of your music career. It's interesting because, you know, that kind of testing and that kind of policy and admitting a student is based on the idea or the philosophy that you either have musical talent or you don't, that it's not something that can be taught. That's not the philosophy that we have these days, where a student with very poor sense of rhythm or pulse through practice can actually improve the, that area seriously. A student with poor sense of pitch with serious training and serious practice, they, that student can improve that area also. I think we are more enlightened perhaps now than, than in, in the past. Um, it also was, again, an easy way to vet students, applicants. But now we think of everybody having the potential of becoming a good musician no matter what their ability is when they're six years old. And through hard work and proper instruction, you can develop those oral skills, you can develop that musicality, you can develop that ability to express musical ideas. All you need is hard work and good training. That, that's, a, that's a different philosophy of what it means to have talent. So in terms of what, you know, how useful those skills are, they're tremendously useful as I mean being able to internalize rhythms to see a rhythm written down and then sing it back uh, to be able to uh, have a sense of pulse to be able to play together with somebody else with different rhythms so that's all very important and but there, there are many ways of achieving that it doesn't have to be innate the same with pitch and again that can be taught, can be practiced, but of course, both sense of pitch, sense of rhythm, and then all the other materials, the harmonies and what have you, you know, that just gets added on later. And that helps with, you know, maturing as a musician. Now, I've heard that uh, your time as a student was not only about what we would call, you know, classical music, you know, Beethoven and the like, but also you had an interest in, in, more traditional folk styles. Yeah. Um, how did, and was that just something that you were always into? Yeah, it was, you know, there were these young groups of uh, musicians that, you know, were always, uh, you know, were also interested in playing folk music. And we used to play for uh, dance groups, you know, Romanian folk music. 
and we would go on tour. We would have uh, these tours in in the Carpathians. Uh, you know where I lived was uh, by the Black Sea, and it was always great to go on these tours. There were all these sort of competitions, young musicians playing folk music, and uh, and it was was yeah, it was just sort of part of being a string player playing because folk music essentially have violin, you have a cymbal, which is a zither kind of an instrument, you've got clarinet, you've got double bass. So those are, you know, of course, you've got a lot of singing. So there was a lot of fun to be had with, you know, going on these tours of the dancers and, and playing and, and seeing them dance in front of you. And so, and you had solos, you had all sorts of, you know, you improvised a little bit. It was really enjoyable. And and that was interesting because at that time, you know, folk music was becoming part of sort of the political propaganda under the Ceausescu regimes. People actually weren't that interested in folk music anymore. I mean, one of the things that were happening is that all these sort of folk songs, the words were being changed to sort of reflect the communist ideal. And all of a sudden he had these folk music with just sort of communist propaganda lyrics. And so it, it, you know, a lot of people were turned off from that. My experience was not was not like that. And then, of course, any kind of wedding you went to, you had the Roma musicians. So that was always enjoyable to see and and experience. And it's a long tradition because Constanza is a you know it's a port city. I mean, it goes back two thousand years, Roman times, and before that, you know, Greek classical antiquity. There were a lot of Greek musicians and, and, and there was Jewish music, there was Romanian music, Turkish music. It was a, you know, really sort of cosmopolitan kind of musical scene. So uh, it was, you could hear all sorts of music. I was wondering from your point of view, do you think that that uh, scene and that kind of music, which, um, you know, is passed down from, from musicians personally, is it still a very healthy scene or do you think it's, it's more of something which is in the past now? Yeah, after the 1989 uh, revolution, uh, after the communist regime was toppled down, all of a sudden there's this surge of interest, resurgence of, of interest in folk music and folk music recordings. And all of a sudden Romanian folk music became sort of one of the sort of staples of of entertainment and of TV and sh TV shows and, and everybody is sort of start jumping up. And uh, it was almost like a, yeah, a renaissance of, of folk music. And it was great to see. Um, I think before that perhaps it was just, everybody was interested in Western pop music too. That was another thing. And I guess with the revolution, perhaps it was tied to just sort of this new rebirth. Uh, Romania it sort of was part of the sort of the new sense of nationalism um, and uh, a sort of celebration of, of Romanian identity after you know 40 some years of communism and, and uh, Soviet um, you know oppression really so um, yeah so uh, it's it's becoming also in the west there was more um, sort of presence of folk music groups from Eastern Europe. I'm thinking of from Romania, Haiduch was a group that sort of became really uh, renowned in, in Europe and also in North America. Um, also groups from South America. Um, so if you go through Western Europe in the 80s, 90s, you'd be seeing a lot of and hearing a lot of sort of folk ensembles from all over the world. So there was, I think, we you know, sort of opening of borders and European Union and the whole sort of idea of sort of global kind of interaction. There was, there was a lot more sort of um, interest in, in folk music from all over, the, all over the world. Same with klezmer music in the 70s. That was the rebirth of, of uh, klezmer music because again, it had kind of gone dormant. Well, uh, after the Holocaust and the Second World War, um, I mean, so many of the klezmer musicians had perished in Europe. So there was no more klezmer music in Europe. Uh, so really was in, in the United States that klezmer music uh, was, um, you know, was reborn in the 70s, uh, partly because of, you know, um, movies like Fiddler on the Roof, partly because of the uh, uh, American Bicentennial, where all the sort of various nations sort of were um, 
bringing about their their own culture and and they were um, celebrating their own background, uh, cultural background. So uh, yeah, I think there was a sort of resurgence of of interest in folk music all through the seventies, eighties. What takes you to Canada? Well, I uh, was during the communist days, and uh, I came to Canada because I had relatives and came for you know a visit for 30 days and I'm still in Canada. Um, you have a master's degree from Juilliard, which is a very uh, a thing that people are often interested in. People wonder about what kind of place that is. There is a um, a story that that you know places like that are very harsh and people are very mean there and it's not a very nice environment. I mean how would you describe the environment when you were there in New York? You know, one of the interesting things that I found when I was there is that there are a lot of hotshot players who were really, you know, hotshot players wherever they came from. But then they came to New York and all of a sudden they weren't hotshot players compared to other players. And was what was sad to see was, especially, in you know, for undergraduate students, that their whole personality was kind of evolved along the idea of, of being really special and being sort of unique kind of player, wherever they came from. So all of a sudden, there were many who just couldn't relate to just being one of many. So psychologically, I think it was very difficult for many of them because they were trying to, to show off, to really impress people, and darn it, nobody would be impressed. <laughs> you know? if, and if you don't have something else to fall back on in terms of your own self-image, it's like it's an empty shell. Like it's like there must be something else to me than just my violin playing or my piano playing, you know. So that was an interesting phenomenon that I observed. So it was a bit of a transient place because a lot of students just couldn't deal with that. And you know, so they they'd sort of be there for a year and then they'd leave. People practiced hard and it was a good place to to practice, but you know, I, I was more interested in, because you could practice anywhere, and of course, you know, there's good faculty, and but there's, there's good faculty in other places. I was, I was more interested in, in other things in New York, and one of the things I was interested in is hanging around with conductors, which gave me the opportunity to go and attend uh, New York Philharmonic rehearsals uh, with people like Leonard Bernstein conducting and watching them work with the orchestra. And so those kind of opportunities that you wouldn't see in other places. I didn't want to just put myself in a practice room and just practice because I could do that anywhere. It was interesting because I wanted to have uh, instruction from members of the Juilliard String Quartet in chamber, chamber music. And you had to audition for various, various instructors. All of a sudden I realized that there were more people on, interested in applying for a certain instructor then for members of the Juilliard String Quartet. And, and I thought that was really odd. But, you know, a lot of students, I, I realized that this person that they were auditioning for actually was really well connected in, in the music world. And they, if they liked the student, they could sort of offer them opportunities that the Juilliard String Quartet would not. So some students, it seemed, were there just for, you know, as a stepping stone to, to exposure, to opportunities, to places like Marlboro Festival and other festivals like that. So they had kind of a, a different agenda from mine, which was to learn. I mean, yeah, I'll take opportunities, but I was more, you know, I was interested in, in studying with members of the Juilliard String Quartet. I was interested in observing these classes that conductors uh, were allowed to um, attend with uh, you know New York Philharmonic Orchestra and um, yeah and of course you know studying violin practicing those, those are also important but yeah there was just you know there are different interests that that students had when when they arrived in New York. So you already had an interest in conducting at that point? Yes I did for that I was concertmaster of the Oshawa Symphony and I had uh, when the conductor was not needed a replacement i'd be i'd be conducting the rehearsals i did some conducting classes in in uh, at university of toronto and then at juilliard i was concertmaster of the conductors orchestra which has, actually was a paid gig but uh, boy i was i was learning as much as the conductors 
and uh, was with George Mester, who was a wonderful pedagogue. And then I took uh, summer courses with the uh, conductor Richard Schumacher in Europe. Gustav Meyer was another sort of principal teacher. Again, you learn from uh, the conductors that you study with, and you learn from just playing in orchestras, um, and you learn a lot from chamber music. Conducting is such a complex thing, you know. So, I mean, was know. there something something in particular that you noticed from from going to those rehearsals at the Philharmonic and seeing some of the the giants of of what to do or not to do? Actually, you know, it's it's kind of funny with conducting because I almost think that all I remember from my conducting studies is the things that I didn't like. And it's almost like those stick, the things that irritate you stick, you know, at least with me in my memory, more than the things that I enjoyed. And I remember the one thing I really remember about observing um, Bernstein work with the New York Philharmonic uh, was uh, they were recording uh, Mahler's Seventh Symphony. You know, during the recording session, there was somebody in, in the violin section doing a crossword puzzle. I just remember that was that was really shocking. I mean, yes, it was a long recording session, but and then also it just seemed that you know the orchestra was tired, and I guess recording sessions can be really tiring and what have you. And and even felt that Bernstein could, yeah, he could change a few things and do a few things, but it was just not kind of the um, enthusiasm and the exhilaration that that you expect, you know. And and uh, so that was that was very interesting because. He came to Juilliard afterwards and he conducted with the Juilliard, with the, with the orchestra that I was playing in, he conducted that same symphony. <clears throat> and he was so exhilarated. You know, he forgot to give us a break. You know, everybody was on the edge of their seats, well-prepared. I mean, he was having as good of a time as we were having, you know, and he was to talk about the music. You know, there was not this sort of a professional kind of a, a a sort of atmosphere was more of a just a real enthusiasm of you know young students just you know hanging on every word and and really appreciating the the exposure so um the experience so there were you know uh interesting interesting things but of course i mean the new york philharmonic is such a fabulous uh, orchestra so just watching them work through things and and play things and have things so finely uh, played and, and um, professionally done. I mean, it was really experienced, but sometimes these other sort of things that sort of stick in your mind more than the, the quality that you expect. And the same well, with feel... conducting, you know, yeah. with other teachers. You know, I remember with uh, Richard Schumacher, I mean, again, a real sort of um, intelligent, wonderful uh, musician. But the one thing I remember that, you know, I took issue with was you know his first class he had all the conductors lined up like an inspection we had to hold our batons up and you know he started at the end of the row and when he got to me he stopped right in front of me i thought oh no you know why me and he, you know he looked at my baton and he said let me ask you what instrument do you play i said i play the violin he said do you play on a plastic violin I said, no. He said, well, why do you have a plastic baton? <laughs> and I thought, it's just a stick. He said, no, you have to have respect for this instrument. This is your instrument. <laughs> From then on, I've never bought a plastic baton. <laughs> well, it's wood and it's always, anyhow, but the whole idea was, you know, I, and I know kind of what he meant that, you know, you need to sort of connect sort of psychologically and musically through your instrument. And if your instrument is the baton, you have to sort of have respect for it. You have to appreciate it. You have to kind of connect with it. So it's an extension of who you are, of the extension of your arm is an extension of, you know, so uh, it has to be meaningful and something that's plastic is just not, doesn't kind of contribute to that kind of attitude towards your instrument. Did you think that the conducting training was more about just score analysis or something about the psychology of dealing with with the players in a rehearsal? Well, it's both. I think a lot of a lot of conductors, I think in the teaching of conducting, focus on internalizing the music. So George Mester 
And at that time, actually, I was glad that I was just playing the orchestra instead of being on the podium working with him. He would take a jacket, his jacket, and put it over the conductor's head and say, now conduct. Don't move anything, just conduct. And it just seemed ridiculous, isn't it? But the whole idea was to force the, the student to internalize the music and not kind of follow the orchestra, but internalize it to the point where you kind of exude these sort of musical thoughts. And it forces you to really think about the music. It's the same with um, Schumacher would sort of talk about, you know, feeling the music sort of in your solar plex and, and, and Gustav Meyer was the same way of sort of very small motions and just having a real focus. Um, now, you know, that's an important kind of idea about conducting, but um, when you, you know, I mean, even with student orchestra, professional orchestras, when you only have two, three rehearsals, you better be really clear. I mean, you better have really clear conducting motions and what have you. While internalizing the music is incredibly important, externalizing it too, so that people can see your, your, your musical ideas through your motions, that's crucial also. You work in many ways on similar things that you work in your lessons. You work on expression, you work on phrasing, you work on balancing things, you work on bringing out certain entrances and then score studying. I mean, score studying is similar to any kind of score studying. You study articulation, you study your rhythm, you study the balance, you start, you know, you study, you know, the historical context, you, you study the tempos, the rubatos. The biggest difference is that you can't really practice that on your own. When I have a retardando, when I'm playing, well, I can kind of spontaneously decide how to slow down. A retardando is going to kind of go like this. But when, when, when you are with an orchestra, you have to really think far in advance. If you, most of the retardando is going to be at the beginning of the retardando, in the middle, or at the end, are you going to go below the next tempo? Are you going to go to the next tempo? How are you going to show that? And when you get to the next tempo, are you going to show the upbeat in the next tempo or in the old tempo? You can't change your mind when you show up at the first rehearsal. Uh, with CPO, let's say, you got to have it all worked out and it better work. Whereas with your own practicing or with chamber music, you got plenty of rehearsals. You try this, you try cueing this. Well, that doesn't work. Maybe I'll just cue a quarter note instead of an eighth note. Oh, maybe I'll just, I don't even need to cue. Can we just do it like this, right? You don't have to really plan as far in advance. And in fact, in chamber music, you could say that you should not plan so far in advance because then you are becoming, you know, an autocrat, right? So you want the ensemble to come up with just the right amount of writ or the right way of, you know, doing things, uh, not having you go there with these preconceived ideas and you're going to do, you know, this much writ here and this much accelerando here and we're going to do this articulation here, right? Well, when you're conducting, you got to have all that just so worked out. So I like to go through every part of a score and just play it on the violin. And, you know, there are a couple of things that I think about. One is articulation. How am I going to articulate every note? Secondly, is the shape of the phrase. And, you know, if it's a wind instrument, you know, where are some good places to breathe? Thirdly, there are, you know, issues of intonation where things might sort of not work out intonation wise if you know there are certain intervals that are odd or you know they're difficult and then tone it's same kind of idea what kind of character you want that instrument wind instrument to have in terms of tone for a professional orchestra you just have to have things so worked out musically in your head beforehand and then be able to adjust if um, somebody has you know solo part in the orchestra takes a different tempo or shapes things differently, you've got to be able to react to that and kind of make the music react to that solo or to that idea. So there's there's give and take. Well, I think many you know music lovers and audience members would be surprised by how little time there is in a professional orchestra environment to put together mm -hmm. a concert. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, after Juilliard uh, and after New York, what was next for you? So after that, I took up a position at Acadia University, um, which offered me again the the three main interests, which have been violin playing, violin teaching, and conducting. I had was just a it's a you know it's a small university uh, in in Nova Scotia in, in Northville, Nova Scotia, but I built an orchestra from from scratch. Basically, I connected with. Uh, Shibakto Symphony Orchestra in, in um, Halifax. And so I managed to sort of do some joint project, have players sort of from there come to Acadia. So within the first year, we were doing Borjak symphonies, uh, Mendelssohn symphonies, Tchaikovsky symphonies, Beethoven's Ninth a few years later. So it was really exciting to actually build an orchestra. And I had people from Symphony Nova Scotia play. Um, so uh, as again, was, there was a lot of support in the community. So it was just great, great experience playing. Um, there was a lot of sort of good, good players, uh, professional players, the Halifax Chamber Musicians uh, was an important artistic organization. And then other musicians in the Maritimes did a lot of CBC radio concerts. Um, in New Brunswick uh, for French CBC, for English CBC. So yeah, there were there were a lot of uh, opportunities to to be really creative, work with different musicians, or for string quartet came up. Uh, and then after that, uh, in 1991, I moved to Calgary. And your time here in Calgary also has been very, uh, has been full of variety. Um, yeah. I mean, let's talk I mean, just about how you feel about that in the sense that Playing Bach on the violin all the time is, is not enough for you, that you want to play lots of new pieces, uh, chamber music and conducting. I mean, you, how do you organize all that in your mind, this idea of, of what you want to do or like to do? Yeah, it, it's tough. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up kind of a thing. It's, it's just music and, uh, you know, it just depends what um, mood you're in to listen to different types of music. Sometimes you want to hear a symphonic piece. Sometimes you want to hear a solo classical piece. Sometimes you want to hear some folk music. Sometimes you want to hear some blues. Sometimes, And sometimes you want to talk to somebody about interesting things about teaching or pedagogy. Essentially, that's what I do. That's what my life is about. It's like, you know, I'm interested. I love orchestral music and I'm interested in working in, in that medium. Conducting is part of that interest. I'm interested in solo music and I enjoy that medium. So, you know, violin playing, you know, doing recitals or that kind of music. And then classical music, folk music. I'm interested in that too. So that gives me a venue for that interest. And then arrangements, uh, you know, I've done arrangements both for the quartet, for other types of ensembles, klezmer music, some blues arrangements. Uh, and then for the Calgary Philharmonic, I've done some arrangements of uh, Ukrainian music and sort of turned it into kind of concert pieces with voice that I did many years ago. Now I'm working um, on a piece for MIDI violin and orchestra. Uh, MIDI violin is kind of a, this new invention. It's it's kind of like an electric violin, but it sends a MIDI signal out. So it's sort of different kind of manipulation. And that's interesting. That's exciting, sort of crossing into a, a different area of, of music making and creating. Least but not last is teaching, the interest in teaching of analyzing of pedagogy, of working with young students, of inspiring young students, of seeing progress, of, of seeing them flourish. That's stimulating also, you know. So it's, it's like uh, enjoying um, lots of things. And the hard part is to do them well, right? Because you can do a lot of things poorly. And so the, the agony is trying to do them well. Um, and that's an ongoing battle. Well, I think about uh, composers and new works, and if you, I've seen you do this, when you say uh, someone, you know, gets you to play their work, your mind seems to be so open 
that no matter what is on that page, uh, you will uh, be very energetic in, in trying to give exactly what is there to the audience, whether mm-hmm. it involves strange techniques or electronics or anything. You seem to be uh, up for pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it comes from, you know, I mean, you can have various perspectives on it. I've had that talk with students that don't like modern music. And so you convince them, you know, that there are always some interesting things they can hang on to. Just as a as an exercise, so an interesting kind of um, mental exercise in figuring out something. There's that approach that you know you you know I try to share that with students that you want to see what the idea behind that piece is, what's the point of it, even if it's experimental. You have to have the humility to actually be curious and not have a preconceived idea. And of course, you know, with students, you have a lot of preconceived ideas, not just about new music. I mean, you have students who say, I don't like Mozart. I mean, you have students who say, I don't like Bach. And so all of a sudden you find yourself trying to sell Bach. You find yourself trying to sell Mozart. So it's not, you know, just selling new music. But in many ways, I I really tell them, I'm not really interested in what you like. I'm interested in you finding out what the qualities of, of these types, what the, of the music is, of the different types of music. And so I, I use that approach for myself. It, it's not really important as what I like. It's important that I really reveal what's special about each individual work. And it's, it's, it's true even on a kind of a personal basis that, you know, sometimes, I just don't like to listen to, um, oh, I don't know, jazz. I'm just not in the mood for jazz and I don't want to listen to it. I don't, I, you know, so it's almost, you don't want to undergo that experience. But sometimes I really am in the mood to listen to some jazz. I am really in the mood to, and I'm not in the mood to listen to Dvorak, you know. In fact, if I get too much of Tchaikovsky's violin concerto, I just don't want to hear it again. I mean, I literally don't like it anymore because I'm just saturated. We just teach it and teach it and teach it. And, and, and so, but then of course you still force yourself to sort of reappreciate it, even though you've been teaching it every year for 30 years. And it's the same with performers who perform, you know, Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto over and over and over again. They have to sort of make sure they can sort of stimulate some sort of interest in that piece. And then the other thing is that even if the quality of music, even in the end, you think, well, this is really inferior. Well, still kind of try and sell it because people are showing up for that concert. They're giving them your time. The least you can do is sort of give your best for that piece and try and have the audience receive some benefit for their trouble and, you know, paying the ticket price. It's, it's kind of a responsibility that you have to the composer. You have to co- responsibility to the orchestra, too, because you, you don't want to the orchestra to feel like, oh, my, you know, the, to create that feeling that they're wasting their time. No, you, you want to create a feeling that what they're doing for that, you know, those rehearsals is special, is important. You're working on details. It's an interesting exercise. Whether it's good music or not, it, it, it's really beside the point. About teaching, you must have some ideas which you think of as core to violin playing. At the same time, during the course of your career, violin style of playing has evolved. And I wonder, when you are thinking about what to tell students, how do you, how much do you worry about disconnecting this idea of a, a core to violin playing versus the way that, that you might play which might not be the most, you know, the most popular way of playing today. Yeah, well, you know, that's a serious concern when it comes to Baroque music, for example. I mean, it used to be that when students entered a uh, competition and there was a Baroque class, boy, I, I really had to think hard. Am I going to introduce sort of period of practice ideas? Who is going to be the adjudicator? Because so much was in a flux for so many years. That, that was a real issue of Baroque playing in, in for competitions or even for auditions, if somebody was going to audition for a graduate program or for a camp or something. 
Uh, are you going to introduce these sort of period practice, sort of less vibrato, lighter stroke, not so rich of a sound, uh, faster tempos? Are you going to do it that way or are you going to do it more the sort of traditional way by, by I mean, the way you hear recordings of Zuckerman and Perlman playing them? That's what I grew up with, right? Uh, but now I think it, I'm pretty comfortable in, in introducing to students Baroque performance practice that they would use in auditions. I think even for sort of, yeah, mainstream student competitions and what have you, I think having these, the kind of playing that fits more into Baroque practice is, gives them a sort of better chance at winning the class or winning a spot at, you know, at a university or being admitted to something than playing at traditional sound of Perlman and Zuckerman. I remember there was uh, an incident on, on CBC many years ago where there was kind of a competition that I think was Sheila Rogers on CBC put of Jean Lamont playing um, the first one of the Vivaldi uh, Spring con uh, Concerto and then the, uh, and Zuckerman. And there was sort of a competition between to see, you know, which one the audience liked better. And if I remember correctly, actually, Jean Lamont got more vote for her recording of Tafa music than Zuckerman did with National Arts Center Orchestra. And that was interesting to me because I remember thinking that if you would have asked the violin players which one they liked better, I bet a lot more violinists would have said Pinka Zuckerman because that's the sound that we grew up with, that kind of solid violin tone as opposed to the sort of more sort of lighter Baroque tone and those kind of tempos and that kind of a soundscape. So in many ways, that again, it sort of points to the dilemma on, on how to play Baroque music. And so, and so you can extend that to other things, right? So you can extend that to composers and other repertoire. I'm curious about your personal style, just because I would, I would say that if I was to hear you well, I've heard you play uh, like uh, something maybe by Bloch or Dvorak. Mm -hmm. And I've, I mean, I get the feeling that you would do things with that that most younger people would not do. And, and uh, that you would not be afraid to have some more slides mm -hmm. or a wide vibrato in that kind of repertoire. Whereas, yeah. you know, I think younger people want to keep it more to exactly you know, the notes that are, that are right. you know, on the page. Yeah. Yeah. And it just comes, you know, from personal taste. So uh, again, depends on the context. And But and I mean, I would you encourage a student to do that in a divorce like string court? I'd encourage them to experiment with it mm -hmm. and see if they like it. Uh, and I do tell them the story of David Oistrach. He said, you know, one of the greatest, um, most exciting events as a violinist was when I discovered the portamento, you know, that I could slide. And, and he said, you know, it was just so great. It was just added all this expression in my playing. And he said, and the second most exciting thing in my sort of development as a violinist is 20, 30 years later when I discovered that I don't have to use portamento to be expressive. <laughs> so he stopped using it. You could say, you know, things like vibrato portamentos are kind of like makeup. You know, what, what happens when you take the makeup off? Do you still have sort of the musical ideas? Do you still have the core uh, music making that will would sell without the makeup? But I like makeup. Some music doesn't benefit from makeup, but I think some music, in to my mind, I think it does benefit from makeup, and, and, and I like it. And, you know, as long as it's done in good taste, and, and that's hard to, you know, qualify. I revert back to recordings that I, I grew up with, with high fits and what have you, where there was, there was that style of playing. So I, I offer students that choice and then they can experiment to it. Uh, I give them fingerings that have, and that's why I like to sort of work on fingerings with them. I don't like them to just copy fingerings because there's always a musical idea behind fingerings. And that's exactly part of it is the slides. If you're going to use a fingering that I give you, you better do that slide. Otherwise, there's no point in using it. 
but but they you know they have to have their own find their own voice but the thing is they have to be able to play in that style and they have to make music and be convincing in other styles right and you have to actually be able to play both you play in an orchestra if the conductor comes and wants you to sound more like a baroque ensemble you better be able to do it right away if the conductor wants to add some portamentos in a Mahler symphony you better be able to do it, embrace it, and do it well. Same with string quartet music. If somebody you know, in the quartet really wants to do these slides, you better do it and really do it well. If somebody in the string quartet you know, wants sort of a cleaner sound, you better be able to do that also, or the composer. And the thing is with slides and that kind of music, it takes you into a sort of a music expression that's important to experience. I mean, that kind of sort of sentimental playing, it really is an important part of our you know, musical expression. You don't have to use it all the time, but you have to be able to do it. You have to be able to experience it. You have to be able to convey it, and then you can use it whenever you want. One of the big parts of your career in Calgary has been the U Calgary String Quartet. I wonder if you just might say what that has meant to you over this time or how important it's been to your your career in Calgary? Three things that I point to is our Beethoven string quartet cycle, where we did all the Beethoven string quartet, all 16 of them. Then we did um, all the 15 Shostakovich string quartet, the complete Shostakovich string quartet cycle. Uh, and that was special. And also the complete Bartok string quartet cycle, you know, all six of them. And those are just such huge pillars in chamber music and classical music and string quartet music. I mean, any category of music, those are major pillars. And having that experience, I mean, it was just was great for Calgary to have a, sort of a unique kind of programming. I mean, to actually be able to hear all those string quartets on the University of Calgary campus. That was, again, a sort of a, a unique thing and, and a special kind of events to have those cycles. And then of course, for our students to actually hear that. And then we've always tried to have a uh, violinist, a second violinist who is a student, one of our sort of top students. The student in the quartet received that kind of experience, you know, um, experiential kind of experience working with faculty. And then for my own growth um, as a musician, I mean, it, it really, um, it, it's, some of it is you can sort of point to, but some of it is just sort of gets collected and it just internalizes it and it adds to your maturity as a musician. Yeah, so those were sort of, you know, very meaningful experiences. Then our quartet CD with my arrangements of folk music and klezmer music. And we took that on tour to Europe and um, that was exciting to receive that kind of attention to these arrangements which really combined sort of traditional folk music with a classical medium with of a string quartet which is doesn't lend itself well to really folk music but you know the arrangements seem to work well enough that we are nominated for you know western canadian music awards and what have you we played on radio and and so that was exciting bring that part of my background into sort of the classical feel of the string quartet and then, uh, you know, we always present works by Canadian composers. And in fact, our concert coming up in April features a string quartet by Oscar Morowitz, a Canadian, a Czech-Canadian composer, you know, escaped from Nazi Germany while Czech Republic, uh, from the Bohemian part of, of, um, of, of Europe during the um, uh, Nazi uh, invasion. He was a wonderful Canadian composer that, uh, so we are featuring that in, at the end of April. We've always, again, uh, sort of supported and commissioned works. We've uh, featured, uh, you know, local composers and Canadian composers. Speaking so it's been this, a this, really good yeah. Uh, experience, yeah? I mean, just speaking about this concert that's coming up, I mean, is this more with a quartet, something that you have tried before? Or what else is on this, this concert? So it's it's so we are sort of connecting Oscar Morowitz because again he was from Bohemia, which is now Czech Republic, and Dvorak uh, again sort of the connection between sort of two Czech composers, and then um, 
Morowitz wrote this his fifth string quartet, which we're playing. Uh, it's called Tribute to Mozart, and he wrote it in 1991, which was the bicentennial uh, celebration of Mozart's. And uh, he used um, material from Mozart's Requiem. It was 200 years from Mozart's death. So we are playing a Mozart string quartet also. So we're having Dvorak, Morowitz because of the Czech Bohemian connection and then Mozart because of the quartet that we are playing by Morowitz. You've mentioned a number of, of famous composers so far. I wonder if there are some names of some pieces, either quartets or solo violin pieces or even orchestra pieces that you think audiences would like if they only were able to give them a chance. You know, it just depends on what I'm thinking of. Right now, I'm uh, looking at programming Ernst Chausson's Symphony in B-flat for maybe next season. It's a wonderful, I, mean, I think Chausson is just a wonderful composer. It is so tragic that he died so young in his 30s, you know, in a bike accident. It's horrible. He, But he was, I think he was just one of the great late 19th century composers. The The Symphony in B-flat I haven't conducted it in many, many years, and I'd love to to do it again. That's a work that I, I enjoyed. With Calgary Philharmonic, I conducted a piece that I like to do again, is Enescu's um, Poem Roumain. That's a really, again, a special piece. It, it really speaks to the sort of the land. It speaks to the, I know, essence of, of Romania and, and is not performed very often at all. Uh, it's rarely performed. It was probably the only time it was performed in Calgary was when I conducted it and programmed it. Yeah, there are lots of pieces like that. And I'm really now into getting excited about this other concert I have featuring music of Black composers. So I've discovered in this past year, again, it was sort of initiated by the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I've started digging into repertoire by black composers. So I have this whole list of violin pieces that I'm excited about that I'm gonna play on um, April 30th. Pieces by David Baker, by um, Joseph Bologna, by William Grant Still, by um, Adolphus Hellstork, by um, Florence Price. So I, I'm really excited about these violin pieces. Final question. Uh, you've made a career in classical music Sometimes people think of classical music as something from the past. Uh, why do you think that it is important to us today in the 21st century? Why, why should we continue to appreciate those old composers and continue to play the violin? One way of thinking about it is to, you know, going to Europe and, you know, going to Paris, going to Vienna, to Florence, to Rome, to all these places that have so many artifacts and buildings. From that perspective of history, enjoying history, who doesn't like going to Paris? And you don't go to Paris to go to Disney World or whatever it is called there. You don't go to Rome to go to Starbucks. You don't go to Florence to go to Boston Pizza. I, you know, I mean, it, it, you go there because of the history of the place. You go to Versailles, you go to these to museums, to Louvre, to Musée d'Orsay, what we offer in Calgary, you don't have to go to Paris to hear Debussy. You can hear it right here in Calgary. So we can bring that part of culture, of Western culture, uh, we can bring it to where we are and experience it. So we can experience, you don't have to go to Leipzig to listen to Bach. You can experience Bach right here. I think from that perspective, offering that kind of a musical experience, that's really beautiful it's satisfying it's expressive it speaks to the human soul what's there not to like profound music such as you know late beethoven sort of deals with religious music of bach all that music it it's connects with different sensibilities in our psyche yeah you just have to sort of be be open to it it's an important part of our self-expression and culture and then you got all the folk music that comes into classical music, what Dvorak and Enescu and Bartok. So you've got sort of the, the, the folk aspect. And then you've got, you know, modern music with Chinese folk music influences, South America, again, infused with sort of cross 
cultural ideas. And you you've have that from 19th century, early 20th century, contemporary music. It's, it's a mosaic out there of everything you've wanted to hear, and including country and Western. It's, it's a whole world. Music can be brought to life anywhere. Violinist, teacher, arranger, conductor, Edmund Agopian, thanks so much for joining me. It was great talking to you. And there you have a miniature portrait of a musician whose curiosity and energy have led him to many different musical careers. You can see Edmund Agopian in action with the U Calgary Sting Quartet in a live stream performance on April 22nd. He will also perform in a concert of chamber music by black composers on April 30th. More details available at spca.ucalgary.ca or at stagestreamlive.tv. More Culture Monster to come. I'm Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening. Thank you.